Good morning. Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Haggai. It's good to see everyone here this morning. It's great to come together and to gather as a church family and, and worship together. Amen. To lift our voices up to the Lord and to be led with such God-gifted musicians. And He deserves every song. Amen. He deserves every praise. I want to read here Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, Son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray that you would give us ears to hear minds to understand, hearts to love your truth. I pray, Lord, that you would uphold me as I preach your word, guard your people from anything false I may say, as I'm a fallible man, Lord, but your word is infallible and inerrant. It's everlasting, and it is truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and your Majesty would be recognized and your sovereignty would be enjoyed and your provision delighted in. And I pray that you would bless our time now in your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to I wanna give us uh, just a remembrance of why <clears throat> or remember that God is telling them to work here. Um, because it, it has a lot to do with what we're going to look at this morning. Um, in verse 4 of chapter 2, God tells them, yet now be strong. Yet now be strong. He says it to Zerubbabel. He says it to Joshua. He says it to all the people of the land. He says, be strong. And he says, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Work Because I'm with you, 
You'll remember that from last week if you were here. Guys, I'm getting a little bit of a deep bass sound like at the end of my saying something. Are y'all hearing that too? Or is, no? You are? Okay. In the middle at least. Yeah, that sounds better. Does that sound good? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Thank you, guys. Um, he says, and then he says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So he's telling them to work. He's telling them to work because he's with them. He's telling them to fear not because he's with them because of his presence. And, and if, if we're not careful, we start fearing things that we should not fear. And, and the primary reason we start fearing things that we should not fear is because we are forgetting that God is present with us. Um, and we should never forget that. Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth, the, the world, right? Even to the end of time, I'm with you always. So we should not fear. Um, and, and yet we do. So why is God telling them to work, number one, because he's with them. And, that, and that's very important for us to remember in our daily uh, walk with Christ in, in this world. We are in this world, we're not of it. And when we walk in this world that we're not of, we have to remember that God's with us. And no matter while we're working, and I said this last week and I'll say it again, everything we do is supposed to be ministry unto the Lord. Everything we do. It's not, hey, we're going to church, so now we're, it's time to minister to the Lord. It's no, when you wake up Monday morning and go to work, it's time to minister to the Lord. When you go to work Tuesday, it's time to minister to the Lord. When you come to your home to your family, it's time to minister for the Lord. Everything we do, we're ambassadors for Jesus Christ first and foremost. And, and so we have to have wisdom in how we express that, but that's, that's our working for the kingdom of God. And we're supposed to be an ambassador of Christ first, but... No matter what the end result, or let me say it like this, no matter the perceived result of the work, no matter the perceived result, and here's why I say perceived. I say perceived result because our perception is never the full perception. We never have the full perspective on the end result. Even when we see the end result before our very eyes, we can never fathom the multitude of ways that God's using this in our life and other people's lives. And so we have to, we have to stop thinking that, that our perception of the end result is fully understood, fully comprehended, because it's not. We have to trust the fullness of the end result with God. And so while we're working with, with, for God, no matter what the results, we can have joy because we rejoice in his willing and reconciled presence. Okay? That's critical if we're going to get through the circumstances of this life, which change every day, every hour. We have to realize that it's not the circumstances that are supposed to have preeminence, Right? So God, God is telling them to work because he is with them. Trust him. Don't trust what you perceive. Trust him. Don't trust that you understand the fullness of the results. Trust him. Now, the second reason 
why God is telling them to work. And, and again, this is, a, this is a summary, but why is God telling them to work or, or to word it differently? What does our obedience express? Because that's what work is. Work for the kingdom of God is obedience. Amen? It's, it's obedience unto the Lord. And so what does our obedience express? Well, our obedience to God, and, and, and we need to understand this, our obedience to God is the only way that we can express that our faith is real. Jesus said, many of you say, Lord, Lord. Right? Many of you will say, Lord, Lord. James says, oh, well, you know, a person tries to prove their faith by saying, I have faith. That's not how you prove faith. That's what James 2 is all about. You don't prove faith by saying you have faith. James says, faith always proves itself in working for the Lord. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, right? According to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. But our faith, if it's real, will always express itself in works. So why does God give us commands as his people? So that we can work and prove our faith. And, and, and when we work and we prove our faith, we prove that God is ultimate in our treasure, in our heart. He's our ultimate treasure. What, what a, listen, what a privilege we have. Amen? To, to be involved in kingdom work, and while we do those things, it shows other people that God is truly worthy of our worship and our adoration. And so this is why God brings up the covenant he made with him, with them. He's saying, I never forget my promises. I never forget my promises. I've always kept my promises, so work if you believe. Put your faith in me and believe my promises because there's a promise. This is what he's saying. There's a promise still to be kept. There's a promise still to be kept. And I want us to look at this promise that God is really reminding them of. And I want us to see that there's a promise still here for the people of Haggai to be kept. And I want us, we're going to, I tried to finish the sermon for to this morning, but it didn't happen in my study. So what I, what I want to do is I want to take this in, in two stages about this promise. I want us this morning to look at the misunderstanding of the promise. And then next week we'll look at the, the glorious nature of the promise, right? But, but this morning I want us to look at the misunderstanding of the promise. And I think as I go through this, I hope that as I go through the misunderstanding of the promise, I hope that what you'll see come alive maybe if, um, if hopefully, Lord willing, is what was behind the argumentation with Jesus and the religious leaders in the Gospels? And what was behind the apostles' argumentation and the Jews that were coming in and trying to uh, cause problems in the, in the New Testament church? This is what I hope you see as we go through this misunderstanding of the promise. I want us to... to ultimately see the glorious nature of the promise that we, that we, by the way, have not experienced yet. Not fully. 
Not fully. It's, it's what one of my professors called the already but not yet. Right? But we'll talk about that next week. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Now, you can, like I said, you can especially see the misunderstanding of this promise in the life of Christ, and that's recorded in the Gospels, obviously. So I want us to first take a look at the misunderstanding of the promise. So let me read verse 6 through 9 again. Okay? And remember, they're, they're, they're working, and our working for the kingdom of God is, is an expression of true faith. Okay? And then, so in verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, here's the misunderstanding. The misunderstanding was the nature and extent of the covenant that God made with them. It was the nature and the extent of the covenant that God made with them. They thought only one nation. They thought only one nation, ethnic Israel. That's what they thought. And that the Messiah would come and he would deliver them from whatever nation ruled over them at the time and that there would be peace because of the Messiah delivering them from their enemies and establishing peace on earth forevermore. But I want us to listen to the promise that God gives the people of Israel and then shed some light on why they misunderstood. The promise that God originally made about this glorious nation of God's people starts with Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will, that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. Okay? You hear that? I will make of you a great nation. Singular. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So we notice here that God tells Abraham that God will make of Abraham a great nation. Now there's a little more detail in Genesis 17, 3 through 5. Genesis 17, 3 through 5. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So in, in one passage, it's nation singular, and in another passage, it's a multitude of nations. So how do we jive that? How do we jive that? We're going to jive it, I promise. So Abraham is going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And yet at the same time, how can it be a nation singular? Well, we're going to look at where the Old Testament is further explained, and that's the New Testament, right? The New Testament is this. It's an expositional sermon of the old in many aspects. 
The, Old, the New Testament is the, the writers of the New Testament, the apostles coming along saying, hey, here's what, here's what Jesus taught us. This is what this means in the Old Testament and how he's the fulfillment of it. Okay, so Revelation 7, 9 through 10. We're going we're gonna to look at a few passages. If, if you're, for time's sake, I don't want to wait for everybody to get there. Um, but m- maybe I'll start putting them on the screen, but I don't want you to stop bringing your Bible. So um, Revelation 7, 9 through 10, if you don't get there, you can just write down on the margin of your Bible somewhere. It's okay to write in your Bible. Revelation 7, 9 through 10, this is the Apostle John given a vision of, of the future. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And hear this, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, what? Clothed in white robes. What, what does that mean? It means they've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They've been purified by the blood of the Lamb. And they're before the, the Lamb of God with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So here, this vision that John gets of the future heaven is at the throne worshiping Christ for the salvation that they have received is people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. What does that mean? It means people from a multitude of nations. A people from a multitude of nations. So we see here this multitude of nations, which, which multitudes of families, right? It takes families to make a nation. So there's multitudes of families on earth making up these nations and tribes and tongues. And we see all people from every nation or multitudes of nations worshiping the Lord. But then God also tells us something about the church in the New Testament. And I want us to remember, and I just preached on a series on the church. The church is made of Jew and Gentile alike. And Gentile is a generic term for anyone that's not Jew. Right? So the church in the New Testament is built up of Jew and non-Jew. Which would be a multitude of nations. The church is made up from every nation, which is why John says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Okay? There's, there's some arguing going on behind the scene in John 3 because the understanding of the covenant was that it was only for ethnic Israel. And Jesus is saying, listen, Nicodemus, God so loved the world. It's not just ethnic Israel. It's a multitude of nations that are in this covenant. And that's what the argument was going, that was part of the argument that was going on that Jesus was teaching Nicodemus is that this promise is not just to ethnic Israel, it's to the world. Christ died for a multitude of people from a multitude of nations is what uh, Jesus was 
telling Nicodemus. But listen, listen to what God says about the church. He says in 1 Peter 2.9, hey, we were just there for a while. 1 Peter 2.9, but you, but you who? The church, the New Testament church. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Now we have the word singular again. In Revelation, it's a multitude of nations, right, who are worshiping at the Lamb. And yet Peter says that God has made his people a holy nation. The promise to Abraham was he would be a father of a nation, but he would also be a father of a multitude of nations. We're getting there. So what, what's going on is when we see in Revelation and, and hear what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that God has made and is making, still gathering and making us into one holy nation, God is still taking people from every nation, multitude of nations, right? This is why missions exist. So that the people that God has in all these other nations, we can go and preach the gospel and hopefully, Lord willing, they hear and believe and repent and the church is built up, which is built up of a multitude of nations. So God has made and is still gathering and making us into one holy nation, his holy nation, and Peter says it's his own possession. So you see that. How can Abraham be the father of a multitude of nations and also the father of one nation? Because God is gathering people from a multitude of nations and making them into one holy nation. So both are true. So let's ask another question. If this promise is not limited to ethnic Israel, then how can people not of Abraham's lineage enter into this nation? And really, let me say that whether you are of Abraham's lineage or not, you still enter the same way. That's clear from Scripture. Whether you are of Abraham's lineage or not, you still enter into this nation the same way. And that was another misconception of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. How do you enter into this kingdom? How are you a citizen of this kingdom? Well, John tells us in, in John 1, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9 through 14, he says this, and I'll, I'll read more verses for the context of it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born. Now let me stop right there and just say, what, what John is saying is that the people as a whole did not receive him. We know that there were Jews that received Christ, right? I mean, he had the, the apostles, right? He had a small following there. 
So it wasn't that no Jewish people were believing in Jesus. John's saying the people as a whole, the nation as a whole, did not believe in him. They didn't receive him. But some did. And some non-Jews believed him. And so how, how did that happen? It says, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, and this is important, not of blood. That's really all I wanted to say in this passage, but, but I wanted to give context. Not of blood, nor of the will of man, or nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. So how were they born? They were born by God. That's what Ephesians 2 says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the power, prince of the power of the air, right? But God. But God did what? But God made you alive. How, how were you born? God made you alive. It wasn't, it wasn't of your blood. Now, if you go back years, this was more lingo that may have been understood. What does that mean? It means it's not your lineage. It's not your bloodline. You know, we have, we have we, well, we used to, still do, I guess. You know, the leader dies, the king dies, and guess who takes his place? Someone of the same blood. That's, that's lineage. That's by lineage. And Jesus, Jesus says, it's not of your lineage. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we all have seen, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So who were born, obviously, what does that mean? He's talking here about the new birth. And he John further explains this new birth in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, right? John speaks in seed form of this new birth here in, in chapter 1, but then he goes in much more detail in John chapter 3 when he's speaking to Nicodemus. But he's speaking here of, so who was born again and how? Well, it's not if you're of Abraham or of Kent, right? It's not lineage, we, we can't determine our children into the kingdom of God. So you're not, you're not born again or enter the kingdom of, of, of heaven or kingdom of God by bloodline. I mean, that Nicodemus was, that's what Nicodemus was confused about. He's like, how can one enter then? I mean, if it's not my lineage... If it's not me being uh, of Abraham, then how, how can someone enter? So you're not born again due to bloodline. That's, that's my main point here. You do, you do not become a citizen of God's kingdom, his holy nation, by your lineage. Then how? How do you become, if it's not of your lineage, how do you become a citizen of God's glorious and holy nation. Well, we know, and I'm going to say it right now because I don't want to forget this. This is important. I'm going to tell you how. Faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 9, 6 through 8. 
Romans 9, 6 through 8. It says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because the question is, is man, what's going on with Israel? He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, I mean, this is basically saying the same thing that John just said in chapter 1, right? It's not of lineage. Not all descendants of Abraham, Paul says, are of Abraham. Verse 7, and not all children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, and this is important to hear, this means, so what Paul says, this, here's what I'm talking about. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Do you hear that again? It's not bloodline. Being of the lineage of Abraham doesn't qualify you. And Paul is explicitly saying that. I don't know how it can be any more clear than what Paul's saying here. And John, when he says it's not a blood. So, so let me say this. Being of the lineage of Abraham doesn't qualify you, but it also doesn't disqualify you. But salvation has everything to do with Abraham's offspring. I don't want to confuse you. Hang on. That word offspring can also be tra translated seed. Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, God tells uh, Adam and Eve who will deliver his people from the enemy. And it's going to be the seed of the woman. Remember that? The seed of the woman. And so then you get a little further in the, in the Old Testament and you say, hey, this, this seed of the woman is going to come through you, Abraham. And it's going to Israel and, Right? The tribe of Judah, the scepter will never leave the tribe of Judah, we're told in, I believe, Genesis 51. I think it's Genesis 51. And then we're told that it's going to be of the lineage of David. So God keeps kind of narrowing down where to look for the deliverer. And then you get to the Gospels, and they take Jesus, and they go back and show you how God kept his promise in Genesis 3 and to Abraham. So being of the lineage of Abraham doesn't qualify you, but it also doesn't disqualify you. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3, 7 through 9. He says this to the church in Galatia who, who were having some difficulties. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Do you, do you hear that? Now, in, in Romans, he says, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And th this is what he means in Romans. He's talking about the people who believe the promise, who put their faith in God to keep his promise. The promise for what? Deliverance. 
the promise for salvation, the promise to be reconciled to him and part of his kingdom forever. And Paul, I think, explains a little more clearly, at least surface level, um, in Galatians 3, 7 through 9, when he says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So it's not of blood. It's not the bloodline of Abraham who make up the kingdom of God. It's the, the believers. That's right. It's, the, it's the, those who are of faith. Those who believe in Jesus Christ. Those are the sons of Abraham. And he says in verse 8, In the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the true offspring of Abraham are those of faith. Now Paul continues to clarify. In Galatians 3.16, Galatians 3.16, Paul says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And, and this is really important to understand too. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then Paul says this, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many. So what Paul's explaining here is that the promise is, is more exclusive it's not to offsprings, it's to offspring. And he says, it does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And then he says this, who is Christ? So the promises to Abraham, to his offspring, are in who? Christ. And so... The, the New Testament can say this, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in who? Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so who gets to inherit those promises that were made to Abraham's offspring singular, who is Christ, who's the promises the promises are made to Christ, and who gets to inherit those with us? I think there's some passages that we could go to if we had more time that say we are joint, what? Heirs, Heirs with Jesus Christ. How do we get to inherit all the promises of God? By being united to Jesus Christ. And we, when we are in Jesus Christ, we become joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and we get to inherit all that Jesus has. With him. So the true offspring of Abraham, Paul says, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham that would make Abraham, and, and this is another link. How, how do we have this multitude of nations in Revelation, and how do we have this holy nation in, in 1 Peter 2 9? How do we have these things? In Christ. That's how Abraham can be the father of a nation, which later we're told is going to be, and obviously was then, a holy nation. And how he can all, that one nation can be made up of a multitude of nations because 
The gospel in Christ is for all, for all who believe. Now there's more. Genesis 22, 17, still this, this conversation going on, this that's Abrahamic conversations. It says in Genesis 22, 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Okay? That's a lot of people. Amen? I mean, who can count the stars except God? But the, the, the offspring, it, it will multiply as the stars of heaven and the, as the sand that is on the seashore. I mean, man, never, I hope we never take up the project to count the sand. Can you imagine? But God knows it. Because not only is he omniscient, but he put them in place. Now, so... In your mind, remember, Genesis twenty-two seventeen. 17, I will bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. So it's, it's innumerable. Amen? It's innumerable. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. You see the, the links? I'm going to make you... A father of a multitude of nations, it's going to be one nation, and it's going to be so many that you can't count them. It's going to be like the stars in heaven. You can't count them. Revelation, I looked, and behold, the number that were worshiping the Lamb was a number that you could not count. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises to his people. Genesis 22, 17, the second half of verse 17. I just want to start there. You can write it down. I just says, and to your and your offspring. So what I just read just a second ago was the first part of 17. This is the second part. Genesis 22, 17, the, the second half. And your offspring. This is still speaking to Abraham. Remember what Paul said about offspring. It's Christ. It's Christ. Christ is the offspring that was promised and that will inherit the promises. And he says in verse 22, second half of 17, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Abraham, your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. Paul says the offspring of Abraham is Jesus. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why can the gates of hell, the gates of hell not prevail against it? Because Jesus possesses the gate. The misunderstanding, I'm going to try to bring this to a conclusion here. The misunderstanding of the covenant was this. They thought the promise to Abraham was for ethnic Jews only, but it wasn't. It was to the whole world. To all those who believe. But, and hear me on this, but 
the promise was to come exclusively from the Jews. In the lineage of Abraham, which is Jesus Christ. The promise was for a multitude of nations, but the promise would come through one nation, and that nation is Israel. And that promised offspring is Jesus. And this is, the very, this is the very reason that when you open up the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew immediately starts by taking Jesus back to Abraham to say, here he is. Extra, extra, read all about it. Here's the one. Here's the promised offspring of Abraham that all the promises are yes and amen in him. And this is the very reason, this is the very reason that the New Testament commands for the gospel to be taken to the ends of the earth. Because the gospel and the kingdom are not for one nation, it's for a multitude of nations that God is molding into one holy nation. And it's filled with priests and kings unto God, Peter says. It's for the whole world, right? Nicodemus, for God so loved the world, they gave his only son, right? Gave his only begotten son. And whoever from the world believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, that we can joyfully praise the Lord for this truth. I mean, listen, let us not misunderstand the covenant. The only way to enter into the covenant with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And what you are putting your faith in is that you understand and know that you cannot stand before God in judgment and represent yourself because you have broken the law in many points, but all it takes is one point. And when the law says, have you broken me? The only thing that you can say on your own is yes, I'm guilty of breaking the law. So we can't stand on our own before the judgment seat. We can't stand on our own before the Lord. We need an advocate. We need someone to stand in our place. We need someone who can say, listen, He's innocent because the law has already been satisfied and the justice of the law has already been satisfied on the cross by me. Amen. And I kept the covenant because I was tempted in all points yet without sin for him or her. And so the covenant has been kept fully forever by me for him. That's what our faith is in. We believe that when Christ went to the cross, he went to the cross to pay for the sins of every single person that would believe in him. And he doesn't just clean our plate and say, good luck now. 
No, he kept the covenant for us. That's why it's called eternal life. We get eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Because if it wasn't him, if it was just Jesus cleaning the plate up and saying good luck now, it wouldn't be called eternal life for me. It would be called like two-second life. Because that's how sinful we are. May we praise, I mean, these truths are so fantastic and so wonderful and so gracious and so benevolent, so glorious, so awesome that we should sound off like the Apostle Paul in Romans eleven thirty three through 36, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we praise you. We thank you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to not take for granted what we have. Help us to not be ignorant of the covenant that we enter by faith. Help us to not misunderstand scripture and think that we can somehow work our way into the covenant because our work fails us. True biblical working is obedience out of a justifying faith. And so Lord, I pray that we would be reminded once again to humbly come to your word for understanding. That we, that we wouldn't be like the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were trapped in a system. And so they wouldn't hear anything outside the system. And it led them to death. That system led them to death. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not be trapped in a system, but that we would be Students like the Bereans, students of the Word of God, and humbly approach the Word of God so that you can teach us. And Lord, help us to be obedient to you. Help us to have our faith in you and not our works, not our repentance. Help our faith to be in you, the, your person, your work. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.